invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Luke 5. God's desire to make whole, walking through Luke, learning so many interesting things about the authority of Jesus Christ, His power, what He's done, and how others are responding to it. Last week we considered the response of Peter to Christ's authority. As we live and as we minister, one of the common misconceptions we often find about God in the minds of people is that God is this angry, vengeful tyrant who is inherently difficult to please and who makes it nearly impossible to come to Him. Uh, We see it all the time. Uh, I see it all the time in the jail setting. Uh, When you talk to people who don't know God, who don't understand His Word, whether they've grown up in church and and heard things differently or not. Uh, I talked to uh, one lady not too long ago and she was talking about the the Sunday school teacher she had who, who used God as a threat to behavior and, and uh, who, who painted God as a tyrant in order to get children to conform to a set of behavioral norms that they should be very fearful of this angry God who will strike them down if they don't listen to their Sunday school teacher and such. And, and so it's not necessarily just those in the, in the world who have never heard anything about God that perhaps have this misconception of God as this vengeful tyrant. Perhaps even in the church we can, we can uh, have this tendency or this, this danger of presenting God as this vengeful tyrant, this angry um, person who is difficult to please, who is difficult to come to, who is hard to be entreated, who we, ought to, who, who we want to keep at arm's length. We, we don't want to get close enough for him to truly see our faults, but we don't want to get far enough away that we go to hell, so we keep him at arm's length because any closer, and he'll get angry at us, and any farther, and we'll end up in hell. And that's how a lot of people see God. Many see God as a God of barriers, who has placed innumerable roadblocks between himself and mankind and is asking mankind to jump over every barrier, to climb to the highest mountain, to go to the farthest place, to, to find him. And, but you can't just find him. You have to really seek him out. You have to get over the innumerable barriers that God has placed up between us and him. And if you aren't willing to spend your life navigating all of these obstructions, then you, you don't get to God. But for we who are in Christ, for we who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we understand that this isn't God at all. This isn't the God that the Bible presents. This is not the God that we serve. The God we serve is angry at sin. He is just. He is holy. He is, as the Bible calls Him, a consuming fire. There is coming a day where Jesus Christ will come back and He will come back as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He will come back as the warrior to destroy unrighteousness because He is angry at sin. And the Scriptures say God is angry at sin every day. But we find as we live that the roadblocks between us and God if we do indeed see roadblocks, the elements which obstruct our ability to have a thriving personal relationship with Him, whether it's people coming unto Him for salvation or whether it's us coming unto Him as His child for uh, for the blessings that He has promised, have not been placed there by God. In fact, much to the contrary, we find that it is mankind Himself that has 
erected these obstructions between us and God through our own selfishness and our own rebellion. Even more so, we find that God has gone out of His way, has He not, to repair the breach. To, to repair the breaches that mankind has made in the relationship between man and himself. And the very greatest of efforts toward this reconciliation, the greatest effort that God put forth to repair the relationship between himself and man is found in the very ministry of Jesus Christ, whom we're studying about closely in the book of Luke. Now, to the born-again believer, the whole of God's dealings with mankind just ooze of God's love and his mercy and his grace and his patience with us. But today we come across one of those instances where even the most skeptical and the least discerning of people should be able to see the tremendous love and mercy of God, his desire to reach out to others and to make them whole. So today we pick up in Luke 5, verse 12, the uh, Peter, James, uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John have just forsaken all to follow Christ. He told Peter, I'm going to make you fishers of, uh, fisher of men. They've forsaken all of their nets. They've forsaken all their fish. And they're following Christ. And we pick up there, and we see two instances of healing. And in these two instances, we find God's tremendous responsiveness to those who seek him for mercy. Verse 12, we read this. Excuse me. And it came to pass... When he was in a certain city, behold, a man full of leprosy, who seeing Jesus fell on his face and besought him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Just after Peter, Andrew, James, and John forsake all, follow Jesus. They're now in a city which is simply called a certain city. We do not know what city it is. The the people in Capernaum asked Jesus to say, he said, I'm sorry, I must go throughout Galilee and preach the gospel. So he does so. He ends up back in Capernaum several times, but we don't know exactly where he is at this time. Uh, This passage doesn't tell us. Matthew and Mark in the parallels don't tell us uh, which city it is. Obviously, however, it's not in the city itself. And we know that because a leprous man has come up to him. For a few moments, let's talk about the nature of this disease called leprosy. Leprosy is a communicable disease, so it's a disease that spreads. It's not necessarily highly contagious, but it spreads through um, the exchange of bodily fluids and such. It normally would not spread through touching unless you had an open sore or an open wound. Um, but it does spread, as many, many diseases do, through bodily fluids or through open wounds. Um, most often through cough or through touch, a person would, would spread it from one to another. It's a long-term infection, which it, it, it's not like it hits you in full right away. It's a very long-term thing. As symptoms develop, what it does is it breaks down the nerves so that the person has the inability to feel things. And it generally goes to the extremities where blood flow is the worst. And it starts with those extremities and it breaks down the nerves. So uh, in the extremities, the people that have leprosy would lose all sensation. And what this would mean is that as they live their lives, they would get wounds and they would get infections that they could not feel. They would step on a nail. They would, well, probably wouldn't step on a nail back in that day. They'd step on a rock, a sharp rock, a stick or whatever. In today's day, they might step on a nail or something. They would cut themselves and they wouldn't realize that they've done it. And so because they can't feel anything, they'd have cuts, they wouldn't get cleaned, they'd start to infect, and those infections would start to eat away at the skin. Um, they, would, they would hurt themselves, they wouldn't realize it. 
And all of this would begin to deteriorate their bodies. It also attacks the eyes so that you can't see very well. It's often a very slow developing infection resulting in deformities and skin lesions uh, where the blood flow is lesser. Now today leprosy is known as a healable infection. It takes a, a, a quite a bit though. It's a multi-antibiotic uh, treatment in order to, to treat it. We don't really see it in the civilized world today because if, if a person identifies it, they can get treatment. However, it is still around in third world countries and places of poverty because they just don't have access to the medical treatment necessary to get it taken care of. So in that day, however, there was no treatment. They didn't have antibiotics. There was just nothing you could do. You get leprosy and the best you can do is maintain and they would be cast out of the city. They would become, they would go to leper colonies and they would become outcasts because People did not want leprosy to spread. So they would be cast out of the city. They would not be allowed into the city. They would not be allowed into the temple. They could not worship God. Um, they could not see their families unless their families came and visited them. It was just a horrible existence where you're basically condemned to be an outcast until you die. So Jesus would not have been in the city, most likely, when this leper came to him, unless the leper um, ran into the city, which is a possible scenario. This leper comes, however, and we see in verse 12, he is full of leprosy, the text tells us. And when he sees Jesus, he came to him and he falls down on his face and he begs him, Jesus, to heal this man. But notice the manner of his request. He says to Jesus, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Understand the faith of what this man is saying here. He, he's not saying... Uh, I don't believe you can, you can heal me, Jesus. He's not standing in doubt of his abilities. He's simply saying, I know you can, but the question is, are you willing? If you want to, Jesus, I know you can. Are you willing? Are you willing to make me clean? Because you can make me clean. We find Jesus' response in verse 13. And he put forth his hand and touched him saying, I will, be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy departed from him. He put forth his hand and touched him. We mentioned already two characteristics of leprosy. One, that it's communicable by touch or by bodily fluid. Second, that it's a long-term affliction. Think about that. This man was full of leprosy. He'd been a leper a long time. Secondly, no one would touch him. Imagine how long it might have been since this man had felt human touch. We walk down the road and I hold my wife's hand. You put your arm around a good friend. We take for granted human touch. Human touch is something that humans need. We just had a baby, right? And one of the things that they always recommend is, is a lot of human touch, a lot of human interaction. You want that baby to, to, to be held to be touched, to be loved. They need to feel that. They want to feel that. There's security there. There's, there's joy there. There's contentment there. When you're not holding them, oftentimes they, they recommend swaddle them or, or do something to make them feel like they're being held, to make them feel uh, like, like they're, they're safe and they're secure. We, we, I, I don't know that anyone here could fully understand, the, uh, myself included, how, how much human touch must mean to us as humans. And how much living without it for years and decades would, would affect us. 
And so this man falls down at Jesus' feet, and the Bible says that, he says, if, you, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus touched him and said, I will. How long had it been since he'd felt the touch of a human hand? And his, his statement is just as, as beautiful, if we want to use that word, as the action. He says, I will. I am willing. I do desire this. Be thou clean. And the man was clean. Immediately, the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleansed. Jesus was indeed willing to heal. In verse 14, we find the end of this, um, the result of, of, of this cleansing. Verse says, And he charged him, that's Jesus charged him, to tell no man but to go and show thyself to the priest and offer for thy cleansing according as Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. So Jesus doing something, which we talked about a little bit in the, in the past couple of weeks, he told this man not to tell anyone. Uh, last time we came across this, it was, it was a, de- a demon-possessed man, right? The demon said, thou art the son of God, and, and Jesus silenced him. And we said that it's possible that Jesus silenced the demons because he didn't want anyone to have that feeling of guilt by association. That because the demons were professing him to be the son of God, people might feel as though Jesus and the demons were somehow in collusion together and Jesus didn't want that testimony. That's a theory as to why Jesus told the demons to be silent about who he was. Uh, We also see uh, his disciples, sometimes he silences his disciples and he tells them because it's not time yet. It's not time for you to say who I am yet. This is my time. In this case, we see another reason. So Jesus cleanses this man and he says, he, he says, don't tell any man what's happened to you, but rather go directly to the priest and, and tell him what, what is done, show him what is done, go through the process of being cleansed according to the law, and then let that cleansing, let the cleansing itself be the testimony that as you are ceremonially, ceremonially restored from a life and a body full of leprosy, let the miracle itself testify of me. See, lepers didn't get cleansed. Lepers didn't heal. This was not an a infection that healed in that day. That didn't happen. Jesus did something here that, that does not happen. And he says, let that be a testimony. In the Old Testament law, there was provision made for a leper to go through a process of cleansing. So if he became a leper, and if, he w- if it was verified that he was a leper, he'd be cast out. He would be set apart from the city, set apart from the camp. And then there was a process that a man could go through if he was cleansed of that leprosy in order to be ceremonially reinitiated into the life of Israel or into the people of Israel. The only time in the, the entire Old Testament where we read of a cleansing of leprosy was Naaman the Syrian. He would not have even needed to go through that process because he wasn't of the Jews. So it's quite possible that the priests had never actually invoked this clause in the law for cleansing. And here, this man is going to come and his family is going to testify, this man was leprous and he's going to come and say, I'm clean. And they're probably going to have to go through and look up the cleansing ritual, <laughs> or, or perhaps they had it memorized. But one way or another, I, I can tell you one thing's for certain, they'd never done it before. 
And Jesus says, that will be the testimony of me. The miracle itself. Verse 15 continues, says, But so much the more went their fame abroad of him. And great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. Great crowds would come now. He's healed the leper. He's um, healed Simon's mother-in-law sick of the fever. He's cast out demons. He's healed innumerable others that the Bible has not even spoken of. Many are coming to hear his teaching and to be healed of their illnesses and infirmities. And then verse 16 tells us, and he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. This was not an unusual event for our Lord. In Mark 1, we read of a busy day of ministry and afterwards, verse 35 says, and in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. Jesus would regularly seek out for himself time to commune with God in prayer, especially in the busy times of ministry. He would separate himself. He would go to where he could be alone with God and pray. We'll talk about that more in our application today. We hasten, however, to a second account, one which uh, I believe very much to be an extension of the lesson which the text is attempting to communicate to us today, this lesson of Jesus' desire to cleanse. We saw um, verse 15 and and, uh, 16 already. We look into verse 17, and the text tells us, And it came to pass on a certain day, (coughs) excuse me, Uh, as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Uh, This account took place, the Bible says, on a certain day. Uh, We don't know exactly when that is. He is in Galilee, and he was busy teaching the multitudes and healing their infirmities. Pharisees and doctors of the law were there, uh, the text tells us. And the people had come not just from Galilee, but they'd been coming from Judea and Jerusalem. So all over Israel had been coming to see this man, to hear him teach, um, and to see his power. And the scriptures tell us that indeed the power of the Lord was present there to heal them. That people were being healed, that things were happening, that miracles were being being done, that Jesus was teaching. Uh, It's interesting, this phrase, the power of the Lord was present there to heal them, because from this we understand that it wasn't always Now, we look at Nazareth, right? And we talked about the Nazarenes uh, several weeks ago. And Jesus came to them and he told them that he was the Messiah. And he said, there will never be works done in this place because you don't believe. The power of the Lord was not present there to heal because they were living in this state of unbelief. They were operating under a state of unbelief. But here, the people had received. They had accepted. Like we talked about last week in Capernaum uh, and in many other places in Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, they had accepted him at least to the extent where he could heal them, where he could do the signs and wonders uh, before them. This particular group was receptive to the Lord. Verses 18 and 19, And behold, men brought in a bed a man which was taken with a palsy, and they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. And when they could not find by, that, by, by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. Uh, so there's a man in bed. And the text tells us that he had what, what they call the palsy. This would be an old English uh, reference. The concept of palsy would be a paralytic. Now, in the Greek, the word that we see here simply means to be afflicted with some sort of 
uh, malady that would affect a person's ability to function, muscular or nerve-related. Um, the King James translators thus assume it to be some sort of uh, paralysis, and that makes sense because he was in a bed. He couldn't walk for himself. Most likely his legs were not functioning. Um, he had a paralysis at least from the waist down. And he was brought to Jesus, but there were so many, he was inside at this time, and there were so many people there, and of course the Pharisees and the doctors of law would have gotten precedence to be around him, so they're all around him, they're getting precedence. No one can get into this house, probably no one can get out of this house. Uh, the fire marshal of the day must have been uh, quite distressed, right? And there's, there's no way that, that this man in this bed, being carried by four men, is going to get into this house through the door. So now they're looking for other solutions. And the, they got creative, and the solution they came up with was the roof of the house. They were urgent for the healing power of the Spirit of God upon this man, and so they lowered him through the roof. Now, the scriptures speak of tiling, and if you do any research on this, uh, mo there will be many commentators who say, well, in that day it was still a thatch roof. Um, there, there were clay roofs, but probably not in this region. I can't speak to it one way or another, but here's what we know. We know that the Bible is the inspired word of God and it's been preserved. And in the original Greek, it says it has the word clay. So it was, I believe we can believe that there was some sort of clay tiling. It really doesn't matter anyway, except that by asserting that there was indeed tiling there, we're simply asserting our faith in the preserved, inspired word of God. So it's not necessarily for us, in my opinion, to question whether or not Luke wrote it properly, but only to question whether or not we understand it properly. Either way, they remove the roof. They lower the man into the middle of the room before Jesus. All the people are there. All of a sudden, the roof opens up. A man gets lowered down. Notice Jesus' response in verse 20. When he saw their faith, that would be the four men who lowered him, he said unto this man, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And this is... This is a startling statement. Healing is one thing. The doctors of law, the Pharisees are sitting there. They've seen people healed. They're amazed. They're excited. People are getting healed. Now he says, thy sins be forgiven thee. Jesus has just taken his authority and his ministry to a whole new level. He didn't say, be healed. He said, your sins are forgiven. Now, there's no doubt that Jesus is saying this specifically for the sake of the Pharisees and the doctors that are there. He, they have accepted the fact that he's a healer. They have accepted the fact that he's a teacher. Nazareth didn't, but Cain, uh, Capernaum did. And now these doctors and these Pharisees, they've gotten that far. That's good. Jesus wants them there. But now he's ready to take them to the next step. You have seen my authority over fevers, over lepers, over demons, over fish. Now are you willing to accept my authority over sin, over the heart of man? Notice the religious leader's response in verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? These leaders begin to reason. And you know, sometimes our, our, our reason is a gift from God, but oftentimes uh, when people talk about reason, um, what they're doing is they're looking for a reason to deny what they don't want to believe. 
In the text, this word can imply either um, speaking out loud, reasoning out loud, or simply intellectual reasoning, just thinking in their heads. In this case, we'll find from the verses to come that they were probably just thinking this in their heads. They weren't saying anything out loud yet. They were just thinking in their heads, yeah, this guy all of a sudden went from healing to blasphemy. This guy now has just claimed that he can forgive sins, and only God can forgive sins. Well, they're right on the latter part. Only God can forgive sins. What they're wrong about is that this is a blasphemy. Jesus here is indicating something. Remember what Jesus has been doing. He has been healing. He has been teaching. Anyone with open eyes sees that he has authority over, over the created world. Anyone with open eyes sees that he has authority over the spiritual world and the physical world. All that was created. This is why when Jesus told his companions to cast their nets and the fish swarm in, Peter falls on the ground and says, Lord, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Why? Because he knew that this man has authority. If he can command the, the creation, then he must be God. Anyone with their eyes open and their hearts willing would have to recognize Jesus Christ's authority here. So to step from commanding fish to, to swim into a net to releasing a man from sins uh, should not necessarily have been a point of offense, but it was. Because the Pharisees and the scribes had drawn a line. And they said, okay, we like this guy for what he can give us, but now he's claiming some authority that we don't want to give him. Or that we're not comfortable giving him. And Jesus is being very gentle here. And he will continue to be gentle for several more chapters with them. Helping them. We'll talk about that more next week when Jesus gives the parable of the new wine. So these men marveled at Jesus' ability, but they had not ex explicitly connected Jesus' ability to God's authority. In other words, yes, he's ministering through God's authority, but now he's claiming that he is God, that he can forgive sins. So they were offended. Verses 22 through 24, But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, Why reason ye in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. And he said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy couch, and go into thine house. So Jesus knows their thoughts, and they've been reasoning only in their hearts, and he questions them on this. He responds. He says, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? What's easier? Is it easier to say, Rise up and walk, or thy sins be forgiven thee? Both are just statements. One is not harder than the other. Why should you assume that because I, that, that, that saying, Arise, take up thy bed and walk, and performing a physical miracle whereby muscles, bones, tendons, and nerves are literally being instantaneously reformed in a person? Why is that easier than me saying, thy sins be forgiven thee, and taking the spiritual mess that is a man's heart and reforming it into something new? Why, why do you think that that's harder? Well, it's not necessarily that, perhaps, right? It's not necessarily that they think it's harder, it's just they think that there's this line there. After all, Elijah and Elisha and the prophets of the past, they didn't forgive sins, they healed. They did miracles, but they didn't forgive sins. But Jesus has already claimed to be the Messiah. And from the Old Testament, it's very clear that the Messiah, our memory work, work for the month makes it clear, I, through Isaiah 53, Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, make it clear that God is the one who would come and redeem them. God himself would be their Messiah. 
God himself would be their good shepherd. So Jesus says, look, if I've claimed to be Messiah and I'm coming with all the signs of Messiah, then why are you surprised? Why do you think it, 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 it's, it's a great leap for me to start forgiving sins? Regardless of which statement Jesus invokes for any given circumstance, the same result is to be understood. That Jesus has authority. And indeed, that word translated in verse 24, the power upon earth to forgive sins, is that Greek word exousia, which is the word authority. He says, you need to know that I have authority to forgive sins on this earth. He has authority, and they need to know it. The Pharisees were right. Only God can forgive sins. So what does that mean? So what is Jesus saying here? Well, they conclude Jesus is speaking blasphemy. But an unbiased man wouldn't think so. They'd say, look at the miracles, look at the fulfillments of prophecy. This man must be who he says he is. Instead, they say, regardless of the fulfillments, regardless of prophecy, regardless of the miracles, this man has just put himself on the wrong side of our perception. He can heal physical ailments, but when it comes to spiritual ailments, they drew a line. But as we look at what Jesus is saying today, he heals the leper, he heals the man sick of the palsy. He tells him, take up your bed, go to your house. The man does it. Do you notice something about these, these instances? Jesus doesn't, it's not just that he's willing to. It's that he desires to. The leper says, if you will, you can make me clean. And he says, I do. I, I do will. I do want this for you. The man's sick of the palsy. He can't get in. They lower it to him. Uh, uh, a more proud teacher might say, hey, wait, wait your turn. Wait in line. He sees their faith and he says, that's just tremendous. Look at the extent that they're going through to have the power of God touch them. Look at how, how far they're going. I'll, I'll heal that. I'll heal him. And look, if Jesus was not just so able but so willing to, to heal, but he also had power on earth to forgive, can we not then understand just how much Jesus is willing to forgive sin? The extent to which Jesus has gone to reconcile us unto God. How deeply Jesus is seeking to heal men of their spiritual, their spiritual affliction. So the result, verse 25 and 26, and immediately he rose up before them and took up up that whereon he lay and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed. And they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. The man rises to his feet, impossible. And he rises to his feet. Even if Jesus had just healed the man, the muscles would still have been weak from how many years of not being used? When a person gets into an accident and they're finally able to use their muscles, their, their legs or their arms again, they have to go through a, a, a strong and a long regimen of physical therapy to get their muscles, joints, bones, everything back to the place where they're usable again because they've atrophied. 
and yet this man, having laid for who knows how long, isn't just healed to where his muscles can begin to work again and his nerves can begin to work again and, and the tendons are, and everything's functioning, but then Jesus recreates his muscles with enough strength to be able for him to immediately stand up and walk. Immediately balance. Immediately function. And so he leaves glorifying God, and indeed he should. Why God? Well, not just because Jesus is God, but indeed because this power comes from God. God who created man's body, God heals it. God creates man's spirit, God heals it. All the others were amazed, and the scriptures tell us that two results came from this amazement. First, they glorified God as well. Second, they were afraid. They were fearful. They said, something is up here. And it made them uncomfortable. It made them wonder. It made them uh, fear. It made them uncomfortable. Wondering just what was going on here. He said, thy sins are forgiven thee. What does that mean? And they said, we've seen strange things today. And indeed they had. That word strange meaning contrary to expectation. They didn't expect Jesus to tell the man his sins were forgiven They didn't expect a paralytic man to walk. They didn't expect the roof to be torn off of a house so that a man could be lowered into Jesus. They didn't expect those things. It was a strange day. But it happened because Jesus has authority. Now, we're going to have two applications. The first one is going to be a little bit of an aside. And the second one, and the the two applications will not necessarily be connected to each other. They'll just both be connected to the text. And the first application this morning that I'd like to give is simply this. If you're going to be an effective believer you'd better spend time with the Master. If you're going to be an effective believer, follower, disciple, you'd better spend time with the Master. Um, we're called to minister, each of us in, in, in one way or another. We're called to follow Christ, and every single one of us is called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to follow Him, to go with Him, to serve Him. And in, in my experience, brief though it might be in this life, Uh, there are two primary hindrances which keep us from doing so. First and foremost, uh, we we don't serve him. We're not a disciple as we ought because of um, fear or apathy. We fear what people think, how they respond, uh, or we, we are much more comfortable just to live our lives the way we want to live it without having to go out of our way for Christ. So those emotional spiritual concepts of fear, apathy, and unwillingness. And then the other potential hindrance to serving him is knowledge. That we don't know enough uh, to serve him as we ought. Whether it's, I'm not going to tell others about Christ because I don't feel like I know the gospel well enough or I don't know how to share it well enough or I don't know how to start the conversation or I don't know how to answer everyone's questions or whether it's... um, I, you, you, you get through many years of your life and somebody tells you something about the Word of God and you say, wow, I've been doing that wrong all these years. Why didn't I hear sooner that God wants this of me? Why didn't I hear sooner the blessings that God has promised to those who will walk this way? And as we think about these two reasons, one of them being emotional or, or are effectively attached to our will, whether it's fear or apathy or unwillingness, uh, and then the other attached to our knowledge, We all appreciate the person who has knowledge, but knowledge isn't necessarily the end-all, be-all of understanding or belief. 
as I uh, apply this specifically first to us sharing the gospel with others. You know, the gospel is so simple. We are sinners. Our sin has positioned us toward a place of eternal punishment and separation from God called hell. This sin debt is one that you cannot pay. One which is constantly expanding. You're constantly incurring more debt. So you have no chance of earning your way to God, of reconciling yourself to God, of avoiding eternal punishment. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. We're in a bad place. But God loves you so much that God the Father sent His Son to this earth named Jesus of Nazareth. He lived a perfect life, never once having sinned, but He died a sinner's death. And the Bible tells us that as He died on this cruel instrument of torture called a cross, that God poured out His wrath, His anger, His judgment for your sin and my sin on Jesus. He made Jesus sin for us And he did so with the intent that we might be made righteous in Jesus. So Jesus died and he bore our sin. He paid that debt that we could not pay. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. We can't be good enough to get it on our own. But that's okay because Jesus bought it for us. But he didn't stay dead. Three days later, the Bible says he arose from the dead. And as he did so, he validated everything he claimed. He claimed that he could give you eternal life. He claimed that he had power over sin. Today we read about that. We read him say, thy sins be forgiven thee. They say, who are you to forgive sins? The day Jesus rose from the dead, he proved who he was to forgive sins. That is the proof. The resurrection is the proof. Jesus has the authority over sin and over death. And so just as... As he was the just bearer for our sin, he paid all of our sin debt. He has the authority over death and hell, which means because he holds our debt and he has the authority, he sets the rules as to who gets to heaven and who goes to hell. He has the authority over sin and death because he rose from the dead. He has the legal right to mete it out to whom he will because he bought our debt. He owns our debt. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus has created only one stipulation for a person to be forgiven of his debt so that he can go to heaven. That's to accept him. To believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. To put all of your faith and trust in the fact that you can't get yourself to heaven. There's nothing you can do to get yourself there. You can't earn it. Going to church isn't going to get it for you. Um, Doing good works isn't going to get it for you. Uh, Giving money isn't going to get it for you. Being baptized isn't going to get it for you. But accepting the gift that Christ has, has offered on the cross of Calvary is the means, according to Jesus Christ himself, John 3.16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him, doesn't mean you know in your head, that's not belief. The Bible says even the devils know in their, in their heads that Jesus is God and that God exists and they tremble at that. To believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation, the Bible says, is to repent of dead works and put faith toward God. To, to, to reject anything and everything that you believe might get yourself to heaven aside from Jesus' finished work and to put your full faith and trust in who Jesus was, what he did, and what he claimed he could do. To put your eggs in his basket. You leave one egg out and say, this is my backup plan. You didn't, that's not belief. 
You say, well, I'm going to trust in Jesus, but I've got this safety net of some other deity behind, uh, underneath me. That's not belief. To believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation is to take everything, every ounce of your trust and your faith unto, unto eternity and place it in the hands of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. It's free for you. It was costly for Christ. It's so simple, yet so few will accept it. And it is simple. That was not difficult. If you've experienced that, then you have everything you need to tell someone else. If you have a testimony of salvation, then you have everything you need to tell someone else how to be saved. You're a sinner. Your sin has positioned you to hell. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He rose again the third day in victory over those sins. He offers you a free gift that you can receive in no other way. It's really quite simple. And I emphasize this to make a point. You don't have to know everything to be qualified to tell others. And God does not hold us to a standard of knowing everything. But he does hold us to the standard of taking what we know and living it. Jesus' ministry was not founded on knowledge, though he had it. It was founded on power. The power flowed from his relationship with God. It was these times of separated prayer, the times where Jesus separated himself from the people and communed with his Lord that kept him close to God, that kept him in the relationship that was necessary for him to do what he needed to do. You know the Bible, that's good, but do you have the power of God that comes from a true, personal, thriving relationship with him? It's great if you've got the knowledge. I hope you have the knowledge. That's what I do here every week. It's important to me that you have the knowledge. That's why we go chapter to chapter, verse to verse, so that you know what the Bible says. But look, if you don't have a personal, thriving relationship, and I don't just mean salvation, if you're not spending time with Him, if you're not fostering a relationship with God, if you're not walking with Him, abiding in Him, then you won't have the power of God. These times of separated prayer, these were the times where Jesus kept his relationship with the Father close, where he grew in grace, where his body and mind were prepared for the work of the ministry, all the way to the cross. Just before the cross, Jesus gets on his knees in the garden of Gethsemane and he is yielding his right to die to God, begging God, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not my will, but thy will be done. He is yielding his the right to his very life to God through prayer. So too it must be with us. If you want to have a thriving relationship with God and have the power of God upon your life, you need to abide in him. You need to spend time with him. And there's two primary ways that we do that. Scripture reading and prayer. Now there's nothing in the Bible that commands us to read the Bible every day. There is no explicit command to read the Bible every day in the Bible. But throughout the scriptures, we find principles of men who did seek the Lord every day. We see that precedent. And then we see principles that teach us that saturating ourselves with the word of God will without question be a benefit to us. Psalm 119 is where we learn much of this. Psalm 119.9. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? If you're a young man, young men, of course, have a tendency towards sin and brash decisions and thoughtlessness and all of those things that young men have. How is that, way, how is that man's way cleansed? By taking heed to the word of God. By obeying, by listening, by trusting the word of God. 
Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. How is it that I won't sin against you? By knowing what you expect of me and believing it. Psalm 119.15 and 16, I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect into thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy laws. I will delight, thy word, excuse me, I will delight myself in your word. I will meditate on your word, he says. Psalm 119, 67, 68, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now have I kept thy word. Thou art good and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. I was afflicted when I strayed, but when I keep your word, I find peace, blessing. Psalm 119, 92 and 93, Unless thy law had been my delights, I should have perished in mine affliction. I will never forget thy precepts, for with them thou hast quickened me. He says, I've been made alive by your word. Psalm 119, 97 to 99, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Thou, through thy commandments, hast made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. Psalm 119, 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119, 165, Great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. The very whole of Psalm 119, God commends us to love his word. In it is the knowledge of God and by the knowledge of God comes liberty, peace, wisdom, understanding, delight. The world tells us that we need to exercise a certain amount every day. If you watch any football or if you... I noticed just the other day on a, uh, on a, a bottle of, of pop, it says, you know, play 60 on it or whatever it is. They're, they're pushing this 60 minutes a day of physical activity. And they say if you have 60 minutes a day of physical activity, you'll be a much healthier person. So you have the people that exercise none. You have the people that exercise for that 60 minutes a day of activity. And then some take it farther, right? They, they make activity their life. They really exercise, they run, they lift, they, they get their heart rate up, they've got the, the heart rate monitors, they, they really get into it, they, they push their body. And, and we all understand that regardless of how much or how little, we all understand that the body needs to be used and if it doesn't get used, then you start to lose some of its strength. You've got to be walking, you've got to be using your body or you'll start to lose it. And we need to understand this spiritually as well. There is no command in the Word of God to read your Bible every day. But if you want to be strong in the Lord, doesn't daily spiritual exercise make sense? If 60 minutes a day of physical exercise helps your body stay strong and just helps keeping it going, well, then, then, then shouldn't there be a daily spiritual exercise in our lives as well? Shouldn't there be some compulsion unto daily spiritual strengthening? Doesn't daily meditation upon the Word of God make sense? It doesn't mean you have to read it every day. Maybe you know it well enough you can meditate upon a passage that you, you've got in your head already. Some take it farther though, right? Just like in exercise, some people, they get their 60 minutes a day, they go for their walk or, or, or their, their particular profession means that they're, they're pretty healthy, they're fine. Other people, they say, nope, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run, I'm going to jog, I'm going to kayak, I'm going to hike, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend my free time exercising. Some people take it farther, some people discipline themselves more, and it's the same in the spiritual. 
Some people spend time memorizing the scripture. They, they take their free time and they open a concordance and they study the scripture deeply and they dig into it and they think about it and they meditate on it and they look at the implications of it. And those people, like the person who exercises more so they're healthier and they're stronger, the person who spends more time in the word of God and memorization and, and study will be spiritually stronger for it. And Bible reading is a good baseline. So while it isn't sin not to read your Bible every day any more than missing a day of exercise doesn't mean you're not healthy or strong, a continued trend of failing to grow in your understanding of God through His Word will weaken you spiritually. It seems to be at least a reasonable proposition. And if we want to be effective believers, we need to spend time with God. If you don't know him, you won't understand what he wants. You won't form within yourself a love for him that drives you to serve him. And so you'll love yourself and you'll serve yourself because you won't have God on your mind. Now the Bible is not explicit about scripture reading as much as it is about prayer. We might simply go to 1 Thessalonians 5.17 where Paul simply says pray without ceasing. Prayer is much is, is much um, more explicitly commanded in the Word of God. Jesus taught parables about prayer with the specific intent that men ought always to pray and not to faint. We'll learn about these when we get to Luke 18. We could debate the merits of Bible reading, especially among those who have truly already hidden the Word of God in their hearts and, and have a good understanding of it. We, we cannot, however, debate the necessity of a consistent time in prayer. This is not up for debate. Prayer is explicitly commanded. It is absolutely necessary. If you want to be a true, successful disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to learn how to pray. You need to spend real time in prayer. Why do we spend 15, 20, 30 minutes of our morning service in prayer? Evening service, Tuesday evening service. Why do we always pray when we come together? Because prayer is commanded by God and it is essential to spiritual health. Essential to spiritual health. Peter would write in 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your cares on him for he careth for you. Paul would write in Philippians 4, 6, and 7 that we are to be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to let our requests be made known unto God. We ask God for the desires of our heart through prayer. We cast our cares upon the Lord through prayer. We align our will with God's will in good times and in bad through prayer. We understand that God's will and are led by the Spirit of God through prayer. He speaks to us. We speak with Him. We don't know what to do. We pray. We pray without ceasing and we are fully persuaded that God will direct your path. How do we know this? Because God's Word says so in, Philippians, in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not into thine own understanding and all thy ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct thy paths. We know from the Word of God what to expect. And when we know what to expect, we need to pray to receive it. Don't know what decision to make? Well, pray. Ask God. Wait for His direction. Wait for His peace. Be patient. When He's directed you, you'll know. If you're listening. This is the design of the Christian life. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to spend time with him. Uh, with him. 
To be a disciple of our master is to spend time learning from our master. How has he taught us? He's taught us through his word. From Genesis to Revelation, it is us understanding the God that we serve. We've got to know it. We've got to love it. We've got to saturate ourselves with it. And we need to spend time with him in prayer. And when you do, you will bear fruit. People will be saved. You will find joy and peace. Your children will see that God is real because they will see his reality in you. Your coworkers will see that God, God is real and they will wonder what you have that they don't. The world will know because the fruit of your life will be unmistakable, but you've got to spend time with him. You've got to spend time with him. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, one of the members of the Trinity, having never separated himself from God until the cross, went and separated himself for times of prayer with God. If Christ did it, we better do it as well. Secondly, and this is a, a different point, a disconnected point, so I've kind of got them separated here. Christ will make you clean if you will be clean. Christ will make you clean if you will be made clean. If you want it, it's there. A certain leprous man came to Jesus in total confidence, knowing that Jesus could cleanse him if Jesus was willing. And Jesus says, I'm absolutely willing to be clean. Jesus is teaching the multitude, the men of faith lower a paralytic through the roof and Jesus is not offended. He doesn't say, wait your turn. He says, I will, I want this. Your faith has made you whole. Your sins be forgiven thee. Take up thy bed and go to thy house. Throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ, he shows a desire to heal, a desire to save, a desire to bless. So deep is God's desire toward mankind that Jesus went to death himself with the explicit goal of reconciling you to God. Jesus died so that you could have a relationship with God. Jesus died so that you could be cleansed. He died so that your spirit could be healed. He died to repair the breach. Far from him putting up roadblock after roadblock after roadblock after roadblock between you and God, Jesus Christ literally died to tear down every barrier between you and God but your own will. Your own will. And you know, it's not just about salvation. God longs to bless. He aches to heal, to save. And yet, not only is an unbelieving world wallowing in their sinful choices, but believers are living a tepid spiritual existence. You don't hear God. You don't listen to God. You don't know God. I'm not saying you, but it might be you. There's no joy, there's no peace, there's no contentment. Why? If Jesus Christ has promised contentment and joy and peace, if He says, be careful, be anxious for nothing in the Scriptures, if He, if he says that we will have those things which we ask, then we've got to ask ourselves, why don't we? What's wrong? If God wants to see you saved and living a thriving spiritual existence, then if you aren't, why aren't you? And the only thing standing between Jesus Christ's whole life is a testimony that the only thing standing between us and God is us. Whether that's unto salvation or whether that's unto the fruit of the Christian life 
called in Galatians 5.22 through 23, the fruit of the Spirit. It's not that God is unwilling. The idea of God being unwilling must be rejected the moment we understand the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It shows God as beyond willing and desirous. It shows God reaching out for us. God is willing to do everything he's promised if we will but have the faith enough to align ourselves with it. A couple of weeks ago, Evangelist Stevens used that word, those two words being fully persuaded. Fully persuaded. The Bible says he will redeem. Revelation twenty two seventeen. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let him that heareth say, Come. Let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water freely. That's not a God putting up roadblocks. Come, he says. It's here. It's for you. The waters of life are free if you will come. Whosoever will may come. He will redeem. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heaven laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, come. Is there a yoke? Is there a burden? Yes, but it's an easy one. It's a light one. John 6.37 All that the Father hath given, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. If he comes to me, I'm not, I'm not turning him away. He will redeem. He will be found of you. If you'll seek him. Matthew 7, 7 and 8. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. He's not looking to bar you. To reject you. To deny you. If you'll come to him his way. Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen, And ye shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. He will be found. Of course, Hebrews eleven six. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. He will be found if we will diligently seek him. That's faith. And he will give. We could talk to many others. But Jesus said in Matthew 7, 9 to 11, What man is there of you, of you whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask of him? Look, he's not trying to withhold things. He's not up there with, with this huge list of, of crazy expectations for you to find your way to his perfect path of righteousness that's going to unlock with each step some new opportunity. Jesus hasn't made a secret of how to be saved or how to find the blessings of the Lord. He's laid it all out there. And he said, I've earned it all for you. I've purchased it all for you. Will you simply obey? Respond in faith. Come unto me. And so it is we find that Christ will make you clean if you will be made clean. He's willing to part his blessings if you will, but receive his blessings his way. Align with him in faith. 
And if we don't see these blessings, we know one thing without fail. To whatever degree we read the word of God and we find it lacking in our lives, we find what God has promised to not be the reality. Whether it's, I'm a very anxious person when God says I don't need to be living in anxiety, or I'm a fearful person when God says that he has not given me the spirit of fear, or whether I'm um, dealing with anger, or I'm de- whatever it might be. Whatever it is that the Bible says, this is what is here for you, that, that I'm, not, I'm not finding as real in my life, the fruit of the Spirit being worked out in my life. Here's what we can know. The problem's with us, not with God. The problem is somewhere in our faith, which is not willing to seek out God's blessing or favor or best because we're too busy seeking our own way. It's in our uh, memory work for this month, right? Isaiah 53, 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And isn't that so true? But if we will, Christ will. If we will come to Christ and say, Christ, if you will, you can make me clean on the authority of God's word. We will find him say, I will be thou clean. But it's a matter of if we will. Let's pray. Lord, I do ask that you would help us. I I did not intend or desire today's message to be a discouragement. In fact, I I intended it to be a a, a light message. I don't know that it accomplished that purpose, but I do pray that uh, the Word of God would accomplish its purpose in the hearts of God's people. That we can live a life. You have not promised us a life of ease. You have not promised us a life without, um, uh, without suffering. You have not promised us a life of wealth. You have not promised us a life of material comforts, and we know that. But you have promised us a life of spiritual joy and blessing. You've promised us the fruit of the Spirit to those that walk in the Spirit. You've promised us that we can live this life transcending the sin that is in this world. And we know that. Father, please just give us the faith to believe it. To trust you. Pray uh, perhaps for... um, some in this room who have not accepted Christ. I think of some of our young ones. Maybe some that are, that are older. That if they've never truly come to you and accepted your son on your terms, that today would be the day where they recognize that the gospel is free and simple, but it does require this step of faith, this point of belief, this moment of 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 accepting that eternal life on your terms. I pray for us as God's people that in the months to come we would realize the fullest opportunities and blessings that you have in store for your people. That we would live free from the sins that so easily beset us in this culture, from the anxiety, from the anger, from the selfishness, from the materialism, from these things, these, uh, these idols, these gods, these things that we erect in our own lives that steal from us the joy of the Lord, that steal from us uh, our effectiveness in ministry. I pray that each one of us would be determined in our own hearts through the leading of your Spirit how it is we can spend time with you, whether that's in Bible reading, certainly in prayer, um, that, 
that we would grow in our understanding of who you are, that your word would become something precious to us. That time with you would be something that we are simply unwilling to yield. But we, we can yield the television, we can yield the internet, we can yield the amusements, but we will not yield our time with you, for indeed it is our lifeline to the deepest joys and the greatest realities. May you be pleased with our response this morning to your willingness to make us clean. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.